Okay, back. <laughs> Hopefully this works. If it doesn't, then I guess I'll just have to brave it alone. But we can cross our fingers and await for Richard to rejoin. And hopefully then it'll work. Hopefully that guy who was talking about RFK comes back. There he is. <clears throat> okay, and uh, Richard will pop in, presumably. And then we can proceed as normal and not have to pull our hair out over the darn app. <clears throat> yeah, I can, see, I can see the text coming at the bottom. Richard, there you are. Unmute. Drum roll. Drum roll, please. I'm drum rolling on my desk. And Richard, we can't hear you. Okay. Don't know what the issue is. Richard, sorry. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> some people say Richard sucks. Well, I don't know. I don't fully agree with that because why would I have him as my co-instigator here if he just straight up sucked? Um, but okay, we'll have to proceed. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I think maybe what he could do is just join as a listener. I'm going to text him that. Although I'm not sure if that's even possible because. All right, whatever. All right, pseudonymous. Sorry, uh, go ahead with your RFK stuff. Um. So yeah. Um. Uh, yesterday it was just incredible how positive I sensed the response was from people, but the vast majority of people I spoke with did not actually know yet, had not heard that he was running. Um. So there's a need just to get the word out that he's running. Um. But then. My perception yesterday was that people were incredibly... So what were you doing, just like canvassing uh, on the streets of D.C.? Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. And uh, today today was a little less successful. Um, I don't know what it was. I mean, I... um, uh, I was on the streets of D.C. myself today, but I didn't hear... I didn't see you canvassing, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not carrying signs or anything, you know, but like, uh, I'm just like talking to people, I'm just approaching people who I think might be interested um, and, and, and who might not know, but who I think. So my my perception so far is that uh, especially blacks and, and Latinos are um, very positively receptive to um, to um, supporting him. <laughs> Well, you know, I just saw um, today that there's a theory going around that it's more plausible than people might think that Biden could actually lose the New Hampshire primary, in part because the New Hampshire primary statutorily, per the law on the book in New Hampshire, has to be held first. So the state officials in New Hampshire are required by statute, to hold their primary as the first of the nation. And Hmm. that's irrespective of whatever the DNC or RNC might stipulate in terms of delegate allocation, right? So it could be a situation where there's like a non-binding primary that's not officially endorsed by the Democratic National Committee could, could be held 
that Biden might not even actively campaign in. That's um, but tough. but could end up being almost like this, um, you know, uh, show primary that you could imagine somebody like an RFK overperforming in. Richard, are you there? Hold on one second, pseudonymous. Ideally, and I'm not sure I'll be able to do this, but it would be great to sort of relocate to South Carolina and uh, get to work canvassing there and try to sort of uh, weaken the DNC machine's hold on the, the automatic loyalty to Biden. Because I do think actually, if, if, if one gets to talking with people and telling them, even just letting them know that RFK is running, um, that he can break through. In fact, I mean, it's, I think there, like I spoke with one, um, one man today, a, a, a black construction worker, probably around the age of 50, um, a man. And um, he was at first very sort of resigned to the fact that Biden was going to be renominated, that it was a sort of uh, lock. And um, I, I kept on trying to press upon him the urgency of not accepting that outcome, because I think that's the disaster that we can't we can't afford. Um, and eventually, I think I persuaded him, but it took some time. And um, but I think, you know, I think like if you actually you know, try to communicate with people and, you know, and just uh, our, our response yet continue to press the urgency of actually making a significant change here. Um, I think there's a, you know, the, the name recognition power in this case is really out of the ordinary because there's such a unique mythology around the Kennedys and the martyrdoms of the 1960s and it has a very deep meaning for a lot of people in our in our nation yeah let me ask you that uh, ask you something about that i mean what is the independent case that you would make for the merits of rfk just in terms of his as, a, as an just in terms of just, than a, yeah not as somebody who is the steward of the kennedy legacy Sure, or sure. Who, who should be supported on on the basis of like some kind of nostalgia about his think, no, re- deceased relatives? But like he's, sure. I mean, what 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 qualifies him on the merits independent of that? Um, so I don't know. I'll admit. I'll admit I don't know a ton about him. I haven't done like a thorough, you know, uh, I haven't read a biography, for example, or. Um, but, you know, I've been following American politics closely for many years, and he's, you know, a prominent figure, and I've been interested in the Kennedys all my life. And um, uh, my um, impression of him just as an individual. Oh, pseudonymous, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to boot you there. I was trying to make Richard the next caller to see if he would, if, if his uh, the technical issue would be resolved. Pseudonymous, come back up and answer the RFK question when you get a chance. <laughs> okay, pseudonymous. Uh, there you are. You're back. Uh, Sorry about that. Right, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I got cut off. Um, but I would say that as you said, you you were saying you don't know a whole lot about him. Sure, sure. Um, like, I, yeah, I don't. I haven't done like you know. Uh, a thorough investigation of his life. Um, but I have a sense of his character based on, you know, having seen him speak many times now. And, um, you know, I, 
know a lot about the place of the Kennedys in American history and what that represents. You're talking about independently of that. Um, I do think that's just structurally a big issue in American politics because, I mean, what he's proposing in terms of abolishing the CIA is directly, you know, related to that history. Um, but beyond that, um, I would say that as an individual, I find him to be uh, his independent, to be his own man. I, I don't think he um, is easily swayed by the winds of fashion, and I don't think he's a conformist. Well, I, I got that, but any good. schmuck, any schmuck on the street could be their own man. I mean, there's got to well, be something uniquely that qualifies him to be president, right? Or at least, well, I mean, I if you're going to be going around promoting a candidacy of someone, you would think that you would might have. And I'm not trying to be, you know, insulting Michael, all toward you, yeah. But like, you you got you to give an argument as to why somebody is personally qualified to have the power to the presidency rather than they're just independent well, mind. Well, I mean. Michael, I mean, here being a Kennedy is significant. I mean, he's had, um, you know, I think he's, I, I would say beyond that, though, um, he's. I know, he's I gotta a, say, a serious, I, gotta, I gotta say, though, I, th- no, I think, no, I let think. Me, let me talk, let me talk for a second. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Um, so I think he's, I, my, my impression of him is that he's, he's serious, he's earnest. That's the quality that comes across most of all, earnestness. Um, and then seriousness and intelligence, integrity independence these are related qualities um because he's he thinks things through and arrives at his own conclusions um and sometimes you know he's not perfect but he's i think decent also and these are important leadership qualities that him you know him being a kennedy allows him to uh claim a mantle in a way that can reach a big public in a way that you know uh, you can't you can't get around i mean um but um I think as an individual, too, he's an impressive person. And I think being a Kennedy, he's been a very close student of American politics and understands, you know, the the shadier corners of our history better than most people. Um, and I think these are these are significant qualities of insight if you're talking about really transforming the structure of the state and achieving policy. Change. Uh, maybe. I do have to say, though, that I think the re- over-reliance on the surname is something that would be rightly ridiculed as quite lame if it were being evoked for you know other dynastic sort of candidates meaning it's a bit sort it's a it's a bit too easy to Michael, say, Oh, the guy's a Kennedy not, and therefore blah blah blah. George, he's not George W. Bush. But that's a thing, right? That's a thing, right? That, is, George no, W. Bush but, was rightly mocked yeah, or rightly I mean, lambasted because of his over reliance. Yeah. I know that I'm not I'm not saying there aren't differences. I'm just saying the sheer he's dynastic argument. To, he's being true to the legacy of the martyrs. You know, that's a huge difference. And if if you care about sort of redeeming uh truth and you know, justice and freedom in our national life. I think that's you know a very significant quality that we should we should hang on to while we can. Um, and this was probably the last. I mean, I you know I think it's a very urgent situation. This could be the last chance. So um, I, I just I just encourage everyone to give it very serious consideration. Really listen to what he's proposing, and I think um, you know realize that given the advantages of his name, we can actually achieve something here if we, if we rally around this flag. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm willing to listen. Frankly, it's a bit difficult because it seems that, unfortunately, his vocal cords are fried, which is actually a legitimate problem. Um, I actually like but, it. Yeah. I mean, after after the last three pres after the last three presidents we've had, and particularly the last the last two, um, having someone who doesn't have much of a voice but who's very thoughtful, I think, would be a really refreshing change of tone in our national life. <laughs> well, I mean, but you but in order to listen to what he has to say, you have to be able to hear him. Like just no, literally like in terms Buchanan. of the yeah, he has this murmur. He has this, you know, with Daisy Buchanan, she had a murmur that made you lean in to hear what she was saying, and it was like a mode of seduction, effectively though. And I mean, that will work for him in the same way. I mean, I don't know if he'll if he'll uh, succeed in uh, selling selling the public on himself if he doesn't have that kind of cosmetic quality. But I find the the contrast with such a windbag like the current incumbent to be to the advantage of RFK Jr. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, Richard, why don't you try unmuting yourself and to and let's uh, see yeah, if you I finally hear hear that. Shit all <gasps> Hooray! Yeah. Oh my God. Off the phone completely and then turning it back on was the only thing that fixed it. That always works. Turning off a device and turning it back on always works. We should have yeah. thought of that right off the bat. Well, I knew it would work. It was just hoping for a quicker fix because it <laughs> Okay. Well, um, if anybody out there in the uh, call in corporate leadership is happens to be listening fix the stupid glitch <laughs> anyway um so R richard what's your um I, I haven't been following your take on the tucker stuff all that closely what is your working theory as to what it signifies or do you think it's significant at all or what do you make of it? Uh, I think it's significant. You know, it's like this there's a sort of natural tendency of the republican party to always sort of uh, move towards Hannityism, um, and Hannityism is just you know simple like crooked Hillary and Biden and Hunter and policy uh, stuff being foreign policy and more than Reagan George uh, I think that's what this represents. Like, I don't think Tucker's gonna, you know, be be now anyway. Uh, so yeah, I think sort of nature reasserting itself. Yeah. Um. So. One thing that I see a tendency toward in terms of people trying to make extrapolations about what this signifies politically is they want to believe that there's some kind of grander explanation that really is ideologically heavy that is about like stifling whatever seemingly populist tendency they believe that Tucker represented or they want to stamp out dissension from foreign policy orthodoxies. Now, I don't, and I'm, I don't say this as somebody who is trying to diminish the relevance of Tucker because, for one thing, I benefit personally, or I benefited personally from his stature at Fox because, you know, I probably would not be invited on broadcast TV if not, not for him. Um, he even had me out to Maine and stuff to go to, to do his long-form Fox Nation show, which was cool. Uh, so, you know, I, I stand to be disadvantaged by his potential diminution in, in status. 
but I also have to say that I, I don't okay, really buy the knee jerk. got knocked out, and I didn't hear any. I didn't hear anything ever since I said my thing. I haven't heard anything you said. You can't hear me now. No, I can hear you now, but I didn't hear. I didn't hear anything you said after I said. Uh, you know, after I gave my little spiel on Tucker. Okay, right. I'll just re- I'll just repeat then. Yeah, your uh, your connection seemed to get a little frazzled uh, as you were talking, but it, it seems fine now. Quickly, my my I I, I tend to doubt that. The automatic ascriptions of some sort of political or ideological significance to the ouster of Tucker by Fox, um, I tend to doubt the validity of those ascriptions in the sense that I'm not sure that there is an easily decipherable like political or ideological motive in that it's not clear to me that Rupert Murdoch or somebody decided that all of a sudden there needed to be a machination to ensure that there was not somebody on the 8 p.m. hour who was questioning foreign policy orthodoxies or that they felt threatened as to his takes on Ukraine or China or that he might have been a danger as to promoting some kind of anti-deep state no, I don't, I don't believe that either. I, I, I yeah. when I say nature reasserting itself, it's sort of just like, look, like nine out of ten guys they put in that slot are going to be of a certain orientation, and the one out of ten guys, like you know, he burned out for other reasons, uh, and sort of nature is just going to go back to you know, try and kill me, whatever it was before. Yeah, um, but in terms of the explanation for why he was ousted, I, to me, the most the most plausible one really just comes down to kind of corporate. Caprice. I mean, I happen to have been laid off slash fired, I guess you would say, from a media organization. This was the Young Turks, so not anywhere near the same kind of notoriety, but a couple of years ago. And, and, and it wasn't like, you know, people, I, I noticed that people wanted to assign certain kind of all-encompassing ideological explanations for why it happened, and it really was nothing to do with that. It was just pure corporate randomness and kind of arbitrariness and it wasn't just me who had been late was laid off at the time it was it was a bunch of others but having seen at least on a smaller scale how motives can get imputed to something like this wrongly and fallaciously it made me uh just kind of instinctively skeptical of the kind of immediate desire to want to believe that there was something grander at play whereas i mean I, it, it just could be just Pretty much, you know, banal corporate capriciousness, again, or, or an arbitrariness. And it doesn't really have a, um, a more satisfying explanation than that. But, but people don't want to think that, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, I have, you know, every reason to believe that him bad-mouthing the management uh, in text messages uh, probably is... Uh, uh, didn't help him, and that seems like to be that seems to be like what drove him. I mean, it needs explanation because he was so highly rated. But yeah, I think it's personal corporate stuff. I don't think it's you know. I think there's a lawsuits. I mean, there's lawsuit stuff too. I think there. I think you know to the extent it's not like it's ideological that he's like not Hannity, but it's like he might say stuff that potentially could get you into legal trouble. I think there's a Ray Epps lawsuit that's coming up too, and it's just sort of being a loose cannon. I think doesn't help. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think. My my best understanding is that there had just been sort of discord simmering between him and the corporate management of Fox for quite some time. I mean, it was even reported that some 
Trump communications official who worked in the White House had been appointed as like an emissary between Tucker and the Fox corporate structure because they just couldn't communicate freely. So there needed to be like an intermediary to just handle the sort of competing prerogatives there. Um, so that gives you some insight into how strained there might it might have been the relationship. And, you know, you could imagine that relationship being just as strained, even if Tucker had been a by-the-books kind of handedy type in terms of his public presentation, right? Or even if, like, he wasn't questioning anything to do with Ukraine or Taiwan, or if he didn't deviate at all from kind of, like, just conventional Republican orthodoxy, there still could have been those same personal issues, right? So I think that's that gets to why it's sort of misguided to just assume that all of a sudden, you know, Rupert Murdoch had this political epiphany and realized that Tucker was just intolerable from an ideological standpoint or something. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. I mean, it probably doesn't help get along when they, I mean, a lot of the Fox, a lot of people in mainstream, you know, conservative institutions, they really believe in global empire, right? So if somebody, they might not get along personally with somebody if he, you know, is different from them on, on these issues. So, you know, I think that's, I think that's might be something. I know Tucker was in Maine. He did a show from Maine. Uh, he wasn't like around them all the time. Uh, so, it's, so, you know, that's probably like, you know, whatever. On TV, it's harder to, I guess, probably just not being in the building is probably uh, going to make you distant from him. But also that having different political opinions too, um, you know, also have an effect. So, yeah, I mean, like, is it going to change our politics? Like, maybe. I mean, I think that the Santos thing, I mean, when he, oh, we don't, we, we don't want to get this argument again. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, there is there was I mean there is he at least makes people have to feel like they have to sort of act like uh, you know they they are a little bit skeptical of the Ukraine um, stuff right there, he at least does that even if you think that even if uh, if you think that statement itself is meaningless uh, but I think he did have a uh, influence on foreign policy I think if Trump becomes president again it's going to matter a lot because like. Trump is just like an idiot who just like watches TV and then like does stuff because he's on TV. So like just like the one guy who like just decides on what's on TV, like you know the fact that Tucker won't be there and someone else will be there, uh, I think could be important. Um, but otherwise, it's DeSantis. You know, if it's DeSantis, probably not. Probably again. Yeah, I think a second order effect of it could be that there's like one less pressure point on Republicans to sort of moderate their stance, for example, on Ukraine or other interventionist foreign policy type issues. But I don't see any real reason to believe why that would be have why that would have been the primary or even a significant reason why the ouster took place. And yeah, I, I actually uh, maybe you didn't hear this before, but I, I mentioned that I did his long-form Fox Nation show in um, 2021, which involved going out to the main studio. Um, it, was, it was kind of amazing, the setup. I mean, you had, to, you had to get a car. You had to fly into Portland, Maine. Uh-huh. And then the car, a car is sent for you that takes you almost like on a two-hour ride deep into like the interior of Maine, like in some obscure rural town. And that's where the studio was. I mean, so it was the, the level of autonomy that would have been required to just have that set up is just sort of amazing. And so you can imagine why, like over time that might 
get on the nerves of enough people that maybe there was just some sort of, you know, uh, tipping point where they said, okay, enough of this, you know? Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, I was hoping to eventually do, I mean, my book, I have a book coming out in September, so I was hoping to eventually, uh, get out there. Uh, but yeah, hopefully whoever replaces Tucker will, will have me on to, to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, he is, he is, um, I'll tell you what, Tucker, he is who he seems to be on TV for better or worse. If you like that guy, uh, that's him. If you dislike that guy, that's him too. I think you see it in the, in the text messages, uh, for the most part. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a guy like going off to rural Montana and or rural Maine and living with like the regular Americans away from like the elites of the coast who he hates so much. Like that's completely. That's completely well, yeah, but he actually does go out to rural Montana as well. <laughs> Um, whatever fly fishing yeah Yeah, i mean i agree i'm I'm not gonna i'm not gonna claim that i'm like some deeply intimate personal friend of his but i have enough of a personal you know uh familiarity with him that i agree in that he really is he just he seems to just genuinely not care what people think in terms of not really being guarded about what he'll say on a text message because it might be plastered someplace yeah, context-free right. a year we've later. All, we've all learned. Yeah, we've all learned. That. Yeah, yeah, but, but but it's not because he's like you know reckless necessarily, or uh, it's just because he just generally doesn't care. Like he, I, I think that there may be certain people who had a at, once they reach a certain level of stature, they they really do become almost naturally averse to trying to bifurcate their private versus public personas. Obviously, you need to do that to some degree in that, like, you can't just be 100% freestyling and spitballing on a TV broadcast every night. But but there, there does seem, like, especially in the case of Tucker, like, if you accumulate enough autonomy within an institution, then you really do kind of, you know, you're getting a lot of accolades and and garnering a lot of influence, then there's a certain point at which the private versus the personal kind of is the, the barrier there does kind of erode. And you can see that with Trump to some extent, like one of the bizarre phenomenons with Trump um, that people noted you know, during, the, during the 2016 campaign and onward is that if anything, his like there, there really wasn't any significant difference like it wasn't like as though you could find a gaffe of trump's that he uttered in private that would be diametrically different from what he would have said in public whereas with lots of politicians and others they are more candid and forthright you know when you're speaking to them in public and maybe that still exists to some degree with trump but like the personas had kind of fused in a way that there wasn't a, that kind of standard delineation between the public persona and the private persona. Yeah, I think you're right. And if you re- if you uh, be- if you believe the media um, reporting on this, basically that's the idea. Fox does not like uh, people to get too big for you know too big for feel like they're too big for the network. And you know you read these articles and like they make a good point that like Glenn Beck was hugely rated. Uh, he, they got rid of him. Um, they still survived. You know Bill O'Reilly, Megyn Kelly. These were all pretty big people in their day. I think Bill O'Reilly was just as big as Tucker is uh, today. Um, 
And uh, yeah, they moved on and they all have audiences to some extent. Um, Glenn Beck, you know, has the blaze. It's pretty successful. He's not, he's not at the center of our politics like he was, you know, he was quite like personally fighting with Obama uh, like for 15 years ago or 14 years ago. Um, and so, yeah, this happens. Well, yeah, and it's not just O'Reilly and Beck, right? They unceremoniously canned Roger Ailes. Well, basically I mean, created pretty, the whole network. Yeah, the, the 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 details of the Yale's thing, Yale's thing was pretty. I mean, it was pretty bad. Any corporation of the world would have got ruined of him, I think. Sure, but but I'm saying it's not like getting rid of Roger Ailes was such an existential danger to Fox that they couldn't countenance that possibility, yeah. right? They yeah, then so got what, rid what of him, and it was ending up, being, ended up being fine. And Fox is just as pro, you know remained just as profitable what, as ever. Secret? What's the secret of the network? If it's not Ailes, if it's not the talent, what is it? Just the production people? If they have the best lighting, they have the best graphics. What is it? What is it about Fox that makes it keep going? Is it the people? People are just going to stick with it no matter what. Yeah, I mean, it's the one Republican. It's the one overtly Republican-friendly network. Right, that's, but that's the, a secret. But you saw after the election, they were scared of own and they were scared of Newsmax. Now, well, I think that was exaggerated. Spot. I mean, if you look at the, yeah, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I don't. I think it was exaggerated the extent to which they were actually scared of that because they had such they had such a reliable audience to tap into, uh, people who remember are consuming passively this content on their TV. In but, that, the rate, but, they did, but they did lose, but there was ratings to back up their Right, but, 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 it, but it kind of even, I mean, it, I, that only lasted like a month or two, I think. Yeah, yeah, but that's why they got scared. Well, that's the thing. The, the, the argument is they got scared and then went back to, like, you know, giving the audience what they, what they want. Um, right. Well, I mean, I, th- I think the secret sauce is that they, the they give, they give the Republican-friendly audience what they want consistently over time. <laughs> and they make whatever yeah, adjustments are necessary to continue doing that. That's that's it. And the thing about Newsmax and Own, those networks, if you look at like the just sort of the production value, it is really bad. I mean, they are really bad. So it's like it seems like if you just, yeah, you give the audience what you want and you just have some decent production value. Uh, I guess that's pretty yeah. I've been I've been on Own. <laughs> yeah. As, as yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, fine, but it's just like a webcast thing. It's not like when you're yeah. on Fox, it's a whole production, you know. Yeah. Where you know the they're actually very keenly attuned to maintaining high production value, so you don't feel like you're just watching some kind of glitchy Skype call, or that the host is not really especially prepared. Like it's it's a TV show. Yeah. In the in the first instance, stuff, yeah. like that's what that's what Roger Ailes was all about. He wasn't some like necessarily um, magisterial political mind. Yeah. He was all about... Yeah, so I mean, why, can't, why can't me and you start a network that gives just production value, hire Bill O'Reilly and Tucker, and like, you know, just some other people? Why, why can't other... I don't know why other people can't... All right, let's, let's, let's so do it. People. Let's do it. Let's start <laughs> is it. Only, is there only so many people who, like, know how to produce good TV? Is that it? There's just a limited number of these people in the world? It's like the semiconductor, like, you to get the, like, Chiron or whatever. You just have to have people who have the specialized skill. No, I mean, it, it's, it's about um, there are only so many channels that show up when you scroll, like, uh, on I your know, TV guide. That's the thing. And own, they somehow got on the television. They, I mean, they got there. Yeah, they, but they're, like, in the 200s or something. I mean, oh, I think okay. it, it really is as simple as if, like, I'm in a hotel right now, right? If I turn on my TV, I only have to scroll down no, two pages on my guide to get to CNN, said, Fox, and MSNBC. You just said even though Newsmax has terrible production values, even though it's like, you know, when it gave the viewer what it wanted better than Fox. So I'm saying if you just had a Newsmax, 
that like went harder than Fox, but just gave the audience what it wanted, but had the production go. Right? That would be. Maybe these boomers don't care about it. Maybe these boomers are like they're, they're confused about that. Dog. But I think I, you know, I, I, I think that's true. I think they, uh, I think they, they do care. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I think it's the, I think if you, I think if you try to be harder than Fox, I think you probably get like boycott. Like you know, people on like the stuff that they really want, you know, elections on the aisle and all that other stuff. I think that maybe like the networks gonna pick you up, and so it's harder to get off the ground. That could be part of it too. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think if if the production values is a thing, but I also think that if Newsmax was, you know, channel twenty eight on the dial, and Fox was channel two hundred and seventy six, I think that would almost be decisive. I, mean, I think it is almost as simple as just the prominence. On the TV you know, guys, academic papers where they look at like different jurisdictions where Fox is like higher on the channel list or lower than the uh, channel list, and then they try to see like how it affects like the votes, like whether being higher like just makes people more, <laughs> more Republican because they're turning on Fox. Yeah, and, and what's the and they finding? Find out it does. Yeah, the higher the Fox, like the higher the uh, uh, Fox is on the channel, the uh, the more people vote. Republican. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, you got to. It's it's about prioritizing just the sheer simplicity of accessing the content on a TV. It's the most passive medium for consuming information. And so you want to have the fewest possible steps in between the viewer being able to uh, – uh, that, requ- that is required of the viewer in order to access the information uh, or to get on the channel. Yeah, I guess the boomers yeah. just aren't – you know, they're not moving much. I mean, remember, like the, 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 the core audience are like 68-year-old – retirees who were just you know, veg- vegetating on a couch. I saw this figure. It had like different like shows, like uh, popularity by age. And then it had like, you know, 18 to 24, like the percentage of their audience. And Hannity was like, of like, you know, 20 shows like MSNBC, NBC, you know, CBS. Uh, it was like the oldest show out there. It was like 3% were like 18 to 24. And like they were all over, you know, 60. So yeah, the cable news is People say it's dying, but like I looked at like I looked up Fox revenue over the last few years, and the revenue—I don't know about profits, but the revenue is publicly available—and it seems to be going up. So I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's not time. People were saying it. No, that's the thing. That how could people say it's dying? If, because they're ever, they're very young. Well, I mean, it has to at some point because Trump was a cash done. cow. That that was the whole point of yeah. Why the whole media ecosystem began? Yeah, I mean. It, uh, you could maybe reasonably make the argument that it was dying before the 2016 election because there was real, there was a genuinely downward slope in terms of the profitability of these um, channels and just political me- media as a whole. But then it skyrocketed. I mean, and it was across the board. I mean, the New York Times had record subscribers in 2017, 18, and so forth because it was around Trump, and people thought that oh, maybe that's just because any president kind of um, enlivens the opposition uh, and makes like MSNBC in particular more profitable, or that's why CNN became a resistance outlet in relation to Trump. But it applied to Fox as well. Fox was still the most watched cable channel in part because, in large part, because Trump just massively swelled attention to political news, and it became entertainment in a more kind of full-fledged merger type of way 
Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the, if you look at the data from 2016 well, we, well, we onward, 10, none of these places, we yeah. expect 10, 20 years. I had the age thing has to matter in the long run, right? Might be it takes 20 years. All the old boomers have to die. But if they're not getting a young audience. Well, you'd think, but like, I don't know. Maybe people, as they get older, just become more complacent consumers of this yeah, media vegetables. content. <laughs> they just become yeah. Again. Where like you're you're retired, you're sitting in front of the TV, and maybe you're like a bit more computer savvy or something, but like you're still wanting to watch this stuff on a daily basis. So whatever serves up, whatever is served up to you, you kind of chow down. I, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe there's. Um, I don't know. You would. I, I just feel like you would have expected the margins to be more diminished if it was a just a pure function of age uh, that you know people were gravitating away from this kind of media content. I don't know. And like yeah, people uh, live a one long of the things- time these days, like you think, oh, Congress, like <laughs> you know, people stay there for thirty years after they're old. So yeah, yeah. If your if your audience is sixty, what is it life expectancy? Someone who's sixty five today, probably life expectancy is probably another twenty years. Um, yeah, you know, 40, 45 years. So, yeah. My grandpa is one hundred and two, and he's still he's going strong. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, what else did you uh, did you happen to watch that the thing that I sent you about this war gaming exercise they held in yeah. Congress around it was China? Really funny. Who he was? It members of Congress held it, or he like went to? Wasn't no, no, no. So, so when the Republicans took the majority in the House. Which you seem to forget about because you think the Republicans lost the midterms, <laughs> but they're in control of the House. Oh, yeah. um, they they started up this select committee on the Chinese Communist Party. That's what it's called, and it's a bipartisan committee. But it's run by this guy Mike Gallagher, who is a relatively younger guy. I think he's maybe just forty or something, but he's a hardcore hawk, and um, he organized. A war game held in in the chambers of Congress last week, where they had these think tank people come in, and they played a war. I mean, the, the members of the committee actually physically played a war game with the board stretched out before them on a table, <laughs> and <laughs> the think tank guys, the think tank. There was actually all women, believe it or not. The think tank women who were the, the these experts on purpose, like all women. I have no idea. I mean, they uh-huh. just happened to be women. Um, they were the, they were the PRC, okay, in the game, and they were against, they played against, like, it was, it's like a game of Risk, I don't know if you ever played yeah, that. Yeah, I have. Uh, yeah, they, they were against the, the members of the committee who were the U.S., who were the USA in the game. And of course, the scenario that ended up transpiring, as Mike Gallagher has described it, is that, uh, China launches a preeminent strike on Okinawa, on US, U.S. military installations in Okinawa and uh, Guam. And the U.S. is just in a all-out war uh, with China. <laughs> um, and if you listen to how Gallagher and these other people kind of explain why they're doing these war games, it's supposedly in the interest of deterrence, right? Because deterrence is this perpetually unfalsifiable idea where if the deterrence quote fails, which it did in this war game, that just means you didn't deter hard enough. It never, it's, it's never is it because the premises underpinning your whole deterrence theory were wrongheaded. It's just because you didn't deter enough. 
That's what they say about Ukraine, right? They say, even though everything that was done in Ukraine, U.S. policy-wise, post-2014, was in the name of deterrence, deterrence only failed because Biden was insufficiently committed to deterrence. Not because the deterrence itself was a provocation or an instigation. I mean, it's amazing. If you, if you dig into, if you dig into like deterrence theory, when it became prominent in the Cold War, a lot of the original sort of incubators of this theory were aware of that kind of fundamental problem of unfalsifiability. But today, it's just this kind of catchphrase that people will invoke because they haven't actually read the source material on what deterrence supposedly is. So yeah, I mean, they, but we're supposed to believe that um, it's, this is all about avoiding war. You know, I'm in D.C., so earlier this week I went to this event at the Hudson Institute, which is this you know, hawkish think tank, and they brought in this guy, um, Elbridge Colby, who's, you know, to his credit, you've probably seen him on Twitter, he's very accessible, he's very committed to his cause, which is wanting to drastically ramp up deterrence against China, in part by marginally deprioritizing Ukraine and Russia in order to properly marshal resources toward what he believes is the overriding strategic imperative of the Asian theater, right? And this was the guy, he, he was worked in the Pentagon under Trump. He was integral in crafting the 2018 National Defense Strategy. Um, he doesn't want to abandon Ukraine. He just wants to prioritize, which is extremely vague. But he, so he was there, and um, he was debating the head of the Hudson Institute, who was this former Bush official, and his name is John Walters. He actually ran the Office of National, National Drug Control Policy under Bush. Um, but he's also a foreign policy expert, naturally. And um, although Walters was making the argument that we don't have to deprioritize Ukraine in order to successfully deter China, in fact, they go hand in hand, and... Colby took a different view. They both were in 100% agreement that war, that the, the inevitability of the U.S. going to war with China in the event of some kind of incursion to Taiwan was just a foregone conclusion. Like, there's no debate that needs to happen ahead of time. It's just kind of baked into the policy consensus, and which is just amazing to me. I mean, they, they have this pretension that whether to go to war with China and, and have one of these war game scenarios where there's like a, I mean, Gallagher was talking about how they sunk, 50, how the U.S. sunk like 50 warships in the first week, but it wasn't enough, and we didn't sufficiently weaken their resolve. I mean, they don't think any of this has to be debated. It's, it's amazing how they just think that this is understood to be the just course of events that we all have, we all have just preemptively accepted. That's what struck well, me the funny. most. funny. I mean, Hugh Hewitt, you've got to watch the video, people, if you haven't, because he's like, you know, Gallagher's like the... You know, the yeah, yeah, I, tw I, I tweeted the video. I tweeted... It. Sorry to interrupt. I tweeted... If people want to look at it, I tweeted the excerpt of... Maybe I'll play him after you finish. Go. Well, you have to look at him because he goes, you know, the P Gallagher goes, the PLA invaded, you know, a sneak attack in Okinawa. And then Hugh Hewitt's, like, face just, like, lights up. Like, it, like he just heard it, like, really happened. Like, isn't this war game... But he's so excited. War of U.S. versus China.
Yeah. Well, it's supposed to be a war for U.S. versus China, right? So it's like it wasn't an option where, like, they didn't fight the war. So, like, the fact that the war started was, like, shocking to him. <laughs> like, it was real. And then, like, the way Gallagher's talking, it's like, oh, we went to our European allies to put sanctions, and then they didn't go along with them. And we thought we'd broken the Chinese resolve. And he's just, like, making up these stuff. And Ewan is, like, is, like, reacting. Like, he's telling him, like, you know, a story of something that actually happened. It's pretty, it's pretty surreal. Uh, yeah, let, so, let me... Let me just play it real quick. Let me just play it real quick. Here we go. I want to know about the war game because I still don't know. I want you to just hold forth on what happened when the select committee played a war game. The PLA massed an invasion force and preemptively struck our positions on Okinawa and Guam. So deterrence failed. Uh, through six days, we <laughs> sunk 80 PLA ships in the strait. That's a lot, largely thanks to our undersea. Yeah, you can tell they're devastated that the turns <laughs> failed. It was the most ship missiles. But nevertheless, 80,000 PLA troops gained what's called a lodgement on the main island of Taiwan. They were able to get 80,000 troops on Taiwan despite that loss of their ships. We used up all of our best ammo, our long range precision fires, within one week of fighting. Um, I was also surprised at the extent to which economic and financial weapons were used. Uh, but U.S. economic sanctions, though they impose crippling costs on Chinese banks, many of our allies, even G7 partners, our closest allies, hesitated to join the sanctions regime. And then finally, though the, PA, um, the Chinese losses were very heavy after six days, we were nowhere close to breaking the PLA's will to fight. And they were starting to use commercial ships to continue the invasion. Unfortunately, we only had two hours, so we couldn't go beyond two moves. But that was the basic summary of what happened in the game. Yeah, they only had two hours. They had another meeting to get to. They couldn't finish the war game. And this is the kind of crap that Congress is working itself into a frenzy over. And we're supposed to believe that it's like about preventing the war. Yeah, they didn't break the resolve of those women from the think tank who were there to act like China, like we did. Yeah, exactly. He's just like, but he, but he's like, deterrence failed. But like, wasn't it a war game? It's supposed to be a war with China. Like, wasn't that a <laughs> the whole premise of the war game was what you do in the event of supposedly deterrence failing? I mean, that's why, and, and they're so serious about this. And the, I mean, this is like what think tankers are doing this all day, every day. In D.C. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. funny. Actually, later on in the interview, Gallagher was like, oh, I I heard from Newt Gingrich that back in the day, the House of Representatives actually actually had its own in-house, like, wargaming office. So we we should really reestablish that. And so then what we can do is every time there's a business executive in town who has some kind of uh, dealings with China – we can bring them into the office and have them play a war game so they realize what the stakes are. <laughs> Sounds like a fun way to get engaged Congress. I mean, it seems like that's a lot more fun than the other things. There. Yeah, at least you get to play a game. Yeah, I know. It does seem like fun. It does seem like a very smart strategy. I don't know. Is there any literature? Is there any evidence that these war games like predict anything? It's just, it's like, like, can I make a risk board and like, predict like a war? Like, Is there any evidence that would work? No, I mean, I think you know, the, the term pseudoscience or like pseudo whatever misinformation is overused, yeah. but that's what this seems to be. I mean, it's just this like weird security studies school of thought that gets incubated at these weird um, 
like national defense universities and things that are offshoots of the Pentagon that they then elevate as though it's like a science. Even though like it's never subject to any again, falsifiability or there's never any real like rigorous empirical methodology applied to it. But then it becomes like this article of faith. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just, you should look into it. Yeah, I should. I should look into war. You know what? You've given me an idea. I might write a, I might write a substack on this. I want to look, why do war games? Is there any evidence that any of this works? I'd be interested if somebody like tried to justify it at some point or it's just something they do and they never, they never thought about it because it does seem bizarre. Like you just bring up these think tank women and you have these congressmen and then you just like somehow like predict what's going to happen in a war. It, it's almost too stupid to like believe that that's what they're doing. Yeah, there's the – I read this book um, recently called uh, Perceptions and Misperception in International Politics. It's by Robert Jervis who is one of like the founders yeah, Jervis, of kind I of contemporary – Jervis was like my uh, – like I don't know about supervisor but like I worked with him at Columbia. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Yeah, I worked on oh, I at Columbia. I didn't. Did I know you went to Columbia? I don't even remember now. Okay, so what is your um, fellowship there for uh, two years? Okay, so what was your? Because he was. I mean, he was one of the founders of this whole like deterrence theory, right? And the book is is, the book. I mean, I have some issues with it, but there's at least like a coherent thought undergirding it, like as as to what deterrence is. He even like he even sort of. debunks or challenges some of the, the prevailing notions of how deterrence theory was is, is assumed to have worked in World War II with Neville Chamberlain and appeasement and all this kind of stuff. Because apparently, you know, Neville Chamberlain, if you actually read what he was saying contemporaneously, it wasn't as though he rejected the idea of deterrence. It was just that there was like a different view on to what extent deterrence was needed to be marshaled against Hitler and so forth. Uh, what, what, was your, what was your experience of him like, I mean, did you find him to be a rigorous sort of Oh, yeah, he's oh, yeah. thinker. So I, I was with him. So he died, um, like, right after I left. So I was there uh, 2018 to 2020. Let me see. Let me see what he died. I think he might have died in 2021. He died uh, right before the Ukraine war. He died December 9th, yeah, so, 2021. Yeah, December 9th, 2021. So, yeah, I was there 2018 to 2020. So he died uh, the next year. And, like, you know, it was lung cancer. He was his brain was, you know, really sharp. Um, but, you know, he was like, yeah, brilliant. Like you could, you could tell that, um, you know, even, even the last year of his life. Um, and yeah, he was, um, yeah, he was very, very smart. He was knowledgeable about everything I was writing, you know, about like American, different parts of American foreign policy. He was like, not like, he was like an older generation of IR scholars where like, they know a lot of history. They're basically historians. So you could talk about, you know, something that happened during Vietnam or something that happened during Iraq or Afghanistan. And he would like, you know, he'd have, he'd have knowledge off the top of his head or he'd know like people who'd written about it. And like today, like a, a younger international relations scholar, they're into this, like, you know, this nonsense, a lot of like this academic, this game theory stuff and a lot of the, uh, you know, very o- overly complicated game theory or like the statistical analysis that's mostly, uh, mostly garbage. Um, and so, yeah, that, you know, that was my experience with Jervis. He was a uh, yeah, brilliant and great thinker. And I recommend people to read both books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did read that book and I, you know, it, it was, it was interesting. It was useful. Um, I, again, I would have quibbles with certain elements of it but again at least there's like something coherent to grapple with it seems like today these gallagher types they'll just invoke deterrence theory as it was sort of brought into existence by a jervis or maybe one of his contemporaries but they totally butcher it and uh bastardize it to just justify their low iq 
sort of just mindless interventionism. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, yeah, I mean, they, you know, the people who came up with this stuff, a lot of the people like Schelling at the Rancor, uh, they were they were brilliant and they came to like some crazy conclusions that, you know, they were like basically, you know, don't build missile defense because, uh, you know, you need mutually assured destruction. Mutually assured destruction is actually good. I think a lot of their stuff was actually pretty pretty crazy actually but you yeah know, i agree like intellectually but like you can engage with uh, it like it's it's like yeah. something to, that has enough heft behind it that it can be engaged with on like an intellectual no. level i don't feel like you what can you, engage what, with what, these what, gallagher types yeah but what do you i mean they're politicians you know well you but not even them i mean the, also the think tanks who are informing them yeah think today. tanks i mean the think they used to be one i mean it was basically rad you know in these early days uh, and I think the thing, there was like a proliferation of think tanks. Uh, hey, Richard, it seemed you uh, backed away from the mic or something. Uh, now yeah, you're back. Yeah, you're uh, And so, yeah, I think there's been a dumbing down. It's like academia, right? Like when there's like two colleges, like everyone who teaches at a university is pretty good and everyone who goes to school is pretty good. And when there's like, you know, hundreds and or thousands of colleges or however many there are, like they all suck, right? It's sort of like the same thing with things. Yeah. All right, let's go to uh, let's go to callers. Pseudonymous. Heard from you already. All right, hey, uh, Sheila. Oh, hey. Good to talk to you. Um, uh, to to the foreign policies that I mean, it was really entertaining to hear you guys talk about Rand, uh, the women of Rand Institute. Mm-hmm. I think. No, this wasn't Rand. It wasn't Rand that ran the war game. It was Center for. I mean, they they have such generic names I can barely keep CSIS. track of them. It was like, yes, yeah, CSIS. That's right. Yep. Ah, okay. I, it's still funny as funny as I'll get out. I, I'm seriously entertained by by all of it, but I, I don't know what it really signifies, um, because it's not going to change anything towards the actual foreign policy that we have towards Taiwan, I mean, they don't have any real answers, and they didn't come up with any. And it's- well, how do you know it's not going to change anything? I mean, why wouldn't it change something just in the sense of accelerating the kind of, again, baked in presumption that war is an inevitability, and they frame it in terms of having to come up with some sort of deterrence strategy, but it really is just about making preparations for waging this eventual war that they're again just presuming is going to happen. Yeah, I think I think I'm gonna just kind of deflect here and say, why can't we decouple from China? And and that should start answering some of the the inevitability of war type questions because it's harder to say how can we decouple from China because our NATO flanking nations are saying, let's not decouple from China. And it's not even NATO government specifically. It's all the rich people in the NATO governments making those decisions that we shall not, should not ever decouple from China right now. Well, Richard, what do you think of this? Because during COVID, I found at least tentatively plausible the idea that bringing back certain manufacturing capacities that had been had been offshore over the past several decades mostly in china was reasonable enough but th- then it became okay we have to totally decouple economically from china 
I don't understand why. Like, why should we? I mean, no, I, think, it, I, I, I don't think it was plausible at the time because a lot of the, the stuff that we did end up getting ended up being through different countries and like the vaccine production and the partnerships. That was all international. I mean, people noticed like the stuff that's you know gets hard because of globalization, but it made a lot of stuff easier. So yeah, I never, I never bought any of that stuff. Um, and then the uh, you're right, it's just sort of a. Um, it's sort of just an, it's just like they're looking for anything to like make you know they're looking for any excuse to sort of be anti china right so it's like oh they move hollywood movies got censored oh uh the human rights stuff right oh like this trade we have to like you know have more tariffs on china it, it's it's basically a uh, you know multifaceted agenda so any any kind of relationship with china right you know that you say oh well it's somehow problematic it's somehow bad we have to do something about it i think that's basically what yeah all right thanks to you sheila matthew what's on your mind matthew are you there uh can you hear me yep can hear you. my connection seems really dodgy right now but uh is there any lag no i can hear you fine okay excellent yeah so I guess, I don't know, my thoughts on Carlson are as follows. I think that he's a, he's been a mixed bag. Uh, I think that he has provided, I think that right now, for ideological reasons, there's a very narrow uh, constraint. It's you know pretty banal uh, remark, but I'll, I'll make it. There's a pretty narrow range of views that are allowed to be expressed on, on the range of important issues for um, and, and I think he, he provides that. So he, in that regard, he was important. On the other hand, though, I, th- I kind of see him as sort of a populist demagogue that appeals to a uh, low common denominator while knowing that, that's, that this is what he's doing, um, that kind of riles people up and engages in outrage porn and like narrative confirmation. So I think overall it's it's bad that he's gone because the the state of the of political discussion in the press is so constrained and restricted and for political correctness reasons, ideological reasons and so on. But I don't know, he I, I think that populism, especially right wing populism, well populism of any kind isn't our salvation either. Well but, but well yeah. yeah, I mean I think one way to look at it is he was a vehicle through which a range of different types of people who otherwise would not be given a platform with such a wide reach were able to get their views amplified. And of course, I'm somewhat self-interested, and I guess <laughs> Richard is too because he's a beer on the show, um, because I'm you know, included in that cohort. Um, but even if I, I like to think that even if I wasn't included in the cohort, I can recognize the value of him having sort of a link to a different, you know, array of of figures who uh, were then given a platform because of his sort of idiosyncratic relationship to the media ecosystem. And if that's now cut off, I do think that is a is a loss. Yeah, we're both self-interested here, right? I mean, we, Michael got on, uh, you know, we got on, uh, we weren't getting on Hannity and we weren't getting on Anderson Cooper and we weren't getting on, you know, Chris Hayes. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think there was wide variation. I think Tucker had some great people on it, some great ideas and some of the craziest, you know, worst people on TV. It's just, you know, you take the good with the bad. 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm just in an odd position ideologically myself, I suppose, because I think in some sense our society is highly functional and people around the world want to come here and I'm I guess like I resent a, like populist attempts to in my view excessively deprecate the country but I think in, in some ways uh, you know it's the rise of this DEI ideology like more just more of a culture of constraint on what's allowable expression whereas I think one, one great thing about the country was like 20 30 years ago you'd have like the Nazi on mainstream TV right it, obviously, yeah. but him. But the, Literally, like I mean, you're not even exaggerating when you say yeah. that. Like, it would have been on Tom Snyder or something. Right. No, no, that was like a mainstream cultural norm that even the extremist gets his say. And I think it was a good one, and we've kind of lost it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think I, uh, Tucker was a bit cryptic in what, I don't know, he was alluding to in that uh, Twitter video he put out last night. But it does seem like, and I don't have any inside information about this, and I haven't sought it, but it seems like what you might infer from what he was teasing there would be something, because he was saying that the debates that mostly take place in popular media are totally worthless, and it seems like he was even indicting himself on in that to some extent. And so what you might infer is that he is at least in the beginnings of embarking on some project that could maybe revitalize debate along the lines of what you're saying was existent to at least some degree so back in a prior... Richard, you're... Uh, uh, yeah, no, you're... Just, he's still under Fox contract, so he can't do whatever he wants. They pay it and then uh, he's Well, we don't know what the provisions of his contract are. I mean, and, and clearly there's... I mean, there's got to be some severance package that's being negotiated at the moment. We don't know what will be the ultimate My product of that negotiation. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's worth. I, don't, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily obvious that he's going to be inhibited from doing anything else in the media for like the indefinite future. It depends on what they negotiate. I mean, Chris Cuomo is uh, back on TV. Uh, he's on News Nation, which I've also been on. It's not that not a huge. Usually prominent network, but it seems to be gaining some momentum. Yeah, that's like, the thing like, he wants. It yeah. seems as if like maybe being fired from CNN has made him like a bit more open. I don't know. Maybe maybe some kid, some kid working. For oh, I haven't been. On, I wasn't on Chris Cuomo's show. I was on. Um, I've been on Dan Abrams' show on the same network. Um, but it's yeah, it's a, um, it's a TV channel. Like um, yeah. yeah, it's New, News Nation. Okay, so it's like it's like as it is. Bigger than Own and Newsmax, or like about the same? Yeah, uh, I would say probably it's bigger than Own for sure. Uh-huh. Um, it, 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 it it's kind of it kind of uh, presents itself as like what CNN used to be, and like that being somewhat more down the line. And how how is its production valued? Is it good? It's decent. Um, yeah. It's not like laughable, you know. It's it's pretty good. <laughs> um, and they do seem to be gaining a fair amount of momentum. I saw they just opened up a new Washington bureau. Do they have any conservative uh, guests? Or, or yeah, shows? they do. They do. I mean, Bill O'Reilly's on it. Oh, really? <laughs> Bill O'Reilly? Okay. That's, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think Bill – I'm not sure about Bill O'Reilly's like a uh, – I don't think he's an employee, but he's always on with Chris Cuomo. I mean, uh, Megyn Kelly's on it all the time. It's like the off. It's like the it's like the people who have been cast off of, of Fox okay. and CNN are like – they're all on News Nation. But any, any conservative hosts? 
You know, Dan Abrams, I would say, I has a bit yeah. – I, I, I wouldn't call him a conservative, but I also wouldn't call him like a conventional media liberal either. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I don't know that they have any conservative hosts per se, but they, don't also, but they also don't really have any kind of just – down the line, liberal host either. Okay. I've got to see if I have this. I got to see if I have this channel. I'm interested. I, I've maybe seen clips or whatever, but I, I didn't know. It's it was on. Like an they, they put everything on YouTube. Um, you can get it on, on regular TV as well, but it's on. It's all on YouTube if you want to look at it. Okay. All right. Um, thanks, Matthew. Let's go to uh, Andrew. Hi there. Yeah. Uh, News Nation also had Aaron Mate on. I believe. Believe it or okay. not. I mean, imagine that. Yeah, what uh, what That's, you know what show he was on? It was months ago. I I I don't know for sure who, who I, I'd have to look. Yeah, yeah. I forget what the guy what the host name was, but I was on some other show to talk about Ukraine stuff on News Nation. I can't remember what the honestly host I don't name really was. know the host. I think it might you know, like you said, it, it's a name we might be familiar with. A drop oh, it, it was uh, Leland. Leland Vater or something like that. He was he was a former Foxos actually. Um, so yeah, they're very aggressive in their branding as you know, like aggressively neutral. Like you won't ever be able to tell what our hosts, you know, how they vote. That's that's kind of the brand they're going for. Or um, I don't know. I don't know if the brand is you won't be able to tell how our hosts vote so much as it is you won't able you won't be able to tell like what our partisan leaning is institutionally. That's what I mean. Like by our by the story itself. They have Ashley Blainfield. Know. I remember her. She was CNN. Yeah, I'm looking at their host now. Yeah, it looks like a lot of everyone, basically everyone who disappeared from CNN. Fox seems like. Yeah, was. and I, I I think they they do seem to be. I mean, it's relatively new. I think it's just it was only founded within the past couple of years, but they seem to be gaining enough momentum that it's going to become something of a formidable good force. Especially if they, if they have if they have enough revenue now that they're opening up new bureaus and stuff. Good for them. I hope they I hope they do well. Well, they're gunning for, like you said, kind of CNN's audience. One of the things you guys were talking about was like, what is Fox's magic sauce? And I think some of it is just the audience they've cultivated and over the years grown to like rely on this very specific kind of audience. And CNN seems to be going downhill fast, so I could definitely see News Nation taking up more of their share of the pie. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is just a function of longevity and of habit. So when Fox first started, it was in 1996, it had no audience. Uh, it was totally obscure. It wasn't even available in New York City, believe it or not, like on cable packages initially. Um, it was like in D.C. and maybe a couple other markets. But... Eventually, over time, people like remember, oh, Fox News is a thing, and they keep tuning in. I think you know, this, you'll see something maybe not quite perfectly analogous with News Nation, but like it's just a as people have more familiarity over time with the brand, it's just something that they'll they'll tune into. I mean, yeah. it's if uh, they don't destroy it's, themselves, it's, yeah. If they don't destroy yeah. themselves somehow, I think you're right. Um, sorry, dude. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 go ahead. Um. The actual topic I called in, uh, I guess the war game talk. Did, did are either of you familiar? Did we war game or publicly advertise the war games of if we did them Ukraine and Russia? Because it's clearly an issue that the U.S. saw coming. Right? They had a plan for deterrence, etc. 
So did that warrant a war game? Uh, I don't know of anything that was done publicly. I'm sure that there were, you know, private war games conducted. I mean, the Pentagon is doing private war games all the time. No, I mean like this Chinese, the the one where they're just doing now with China. No, no, there was nothing, there was nothing comparable that was done by Congress because remember the reason why they're doing these war games in Congress now and advertising them is because they had, they started up this new select committee specifically on the quote CCP. Um, but I don't I think there's anything along those lines, like pre-February 2022 in, in, in the House. It's interesting that there doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be a testable thing, these war game No, it's not. Because it, I it, it, it's again, it's, 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 in, it's, it's not amenable to falsifiability, which is the beauty of it <laughs> for the people who are obsessed with it. So then obviously the question is what the purpose would be. I mean, even if you had a war game about a specific war that then happened and played out, which I can't recall off the top of my head. I don't know if either of you can. Are you aware of a war game that then turned into a war? Like, you can't even compare it that way. No, no, you can't. You know, you're right. There's, there's no body of evidence to test anything against. If you want to know what the purpose of it is, the purpose of it seems to be, if you listen to what Gallagher said in that little clip I played, he was bemoaning that the U.S. ran out of long, what he called like long-range fires or the best ammo relatively quick within the first week or something. So, yeah, yeah. The purpose, the purpose then is to say, oh, we need to invest more in getting more long-range ammo. Yeah. That's the purpose. The purpose Here's is to basically – yeah. it's just to generate a long-term – or not even long-term, a short to medium-term war kind of furor within Congress to galvanize support for various – "Quote unquote defense or deterrence initiatives that are basically just you know uh, preparations for some kind of war scenario with China." Yeah, I, I don't know if it's if it was the kind of thing where we there was a plan to go to war with China anytime soon. It seems unwise to I, I don't know. I think a, a war game got leaked. I don't know if it was public or if it was a leak or what. But a while ago, years ago, about Iran uh, and the the U.S. trying to unblock a blockaded Gulf. Yeah, the Strait of Hormuz, I think. Yeah, and basically the outcome was that the U.S. got their ass kicked by, like, Iran. Just trying to unblock a strait. The Navy got their ass kicked. Yeah. And so, you know, if that's that's the result of a war game, you know, if you were to take these as face value as meaning something, you know, if if you weren't going to be, like, cynical or whatever, we might be about how this is just to increase funding if you're going to be like a naive person and think well this, does this you know somehow show us how we may fare in a war so we can decide whether or not this is wise to do at this time then it would seem to me like you can't even block the strait unblock the strait of hormuz but somehow you're going to unblockade all of taiwan and against china and no the, the war game shows actually no we wouldn't do that so it it just seems to me to build a case against war with china even if that does come with the added bonus to these talks of, you know, how we need to get there by arming the military further, I don't see at what point, you know, what, what these war games don't mean anything. They're always going to come up with a, a nonsense answer. The, 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 thing is, the thing is, though, they're not even presenting the case for war with China as open to debate. That's already baked into their presuppositions that the U.S. will go to war with China over Taiwan in the event of an incursion. Well, like I was well, just at this event right. with... Well, 
Well, no, not, not even just for the war game, though. I mean, that, that's the broader policy fr- framework that they're operating within. I was at this thing at the Hudson Institute in D.C. this week where, I don't know if you heard me talking about it before, but the, the, the ostensible debate was between a guy who was saying, oh, we need to pr- prioritize Taiwan at the expense of Ukraine versus another guy who was saying, oh, we can prioritize both simultaneously. <coughs> but they were both in firm agreement that the U.S. is going to go to war with China over Taiwan in the event of an incursion. Like, that wasn't even what they were saying needed to be defended as a proposition, because it was already assumed. Um, and, you know, you look, look what Biden has said. Biden, ahead of the Ukraine war, did say that there would be no boots on the ground. Obviously, whether or not that has held as true is another question. But... Biden's explicit in saying that he said it four times in public, including on 60 Minutes last September, that in the event of any incursion by China on Taiwan, the U.S. will be going to war. It's, it's like outside the realm of a debatable proposition. So the war games and these sort of peripheral debates around defense capacity and industrial mobilization and so forth – that's separate from the core question of whether the war is going to happen in the first place. They're assuming that it is. It's just so insane that it's hard to actually comprehend from outside the circles that actually do this stuff. You know what I mean? It's, it's just so completely insane. Exa- amazing. Like, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I was sitting there at this think tank right, a few days ago, and it's just surreal that nobody thinks it's odd or worth like, noting. Does, noting. Another day at the job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, nobody thinks it's strange that this is the these are this is like the dividing line of the debate, not whether to do the war in the first place, but like how should resources be allocated to wage the war? It, are these people the same people that come up with studies that result in news headlines that say Russia is out of missiles like do you remember the period of months where kiev would get hit and they'd say well that was the last batch and then like a week later or less they'd get hit again uh this is the same same constellation of people yeah it's essentially the same people and it's just like are you even aware of what's happening around you right now like i don't want to harp on ukraine because i always do but this is not going how the u.s planned uh this Ukraine's supposed to be winning, and they're currently delaying the counteroffensive. So, it's the the idea that we could win a proxy war against Russia—that's crazy enough. But then you say you've got live evidence of that not working, and we're going to go ahead and plan a real war with China. Yeah, it's, it's literally. In- it's amazing. I mean, I don't like to. Use, I mean, imperial hubris sounds almost a bit melodramatic, but I don't know how else to put it. Well, you know, I. Maybe that's the fate of empires, right? That 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 you got to uh, come to DC they, at, some, if you can, at some point and just like attend these events. Sounds like terrible advice. Actually. Well, I mean, if, yeah. but if you want to like understand viscerally the mindset, it's worth coming. Like I come every yeah, couple times a year just to remind myself that these people actually exist. Yeah, it should be like a religious uh, trek for Americans. Like you know how Muslims go to Mecca, Americans should go to DC just to see how fucked it is. Yeah. Just see how absolutely fucked it is. Anyway, thank you for your time. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, John. Hey, man. How are you? All right. How are you? Good. So, like, you know, 
I think that a lot of the problem, especially with like Taiwan and China, is is that the failure of people to just hold like the think tanks and like the different people in power accountable, even if it's privately. Um, I spend a lot of time with different representatives at all levels, and you'd be surprised how often I have to remind them that going to war for Taiwan is completely unjustifiable and just a, a, a batshit crazy idea. And they agree, like, at the end of the day. But, like, you continually have to reinforce them and went with these ideas. And when you don't, they just put out this nonsense. I mean, like, I, and maybe you can make it make sense for me, but Taiwan considers itself part of China. China considers no, Taiwan no, 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 no. part of China. Well, I mean, the, the, the party in power in Taiwan at the moment does not consider itself part of China. Right, but they don't. But they don't have enough votes to be able to do anything about it. Well, if you if you look at like what the official position is of like the current president of Taiwan, and of course China, the meaning the CCP, if you want to put it that way, they don't even recognize that there is such a thing as a president of Taiwan. But the the position of the party in power in Taiwan is that they don't even have to declare independence because they already regard themselves as an independent state. You see what I mean? Uh, John, you just dropped out. Shit, huh? Can you hear me now? Yeah, you're back. You're back. I'm sorry. Yeah, but they're not an independence. But 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 like, if you're talking about like what does Taiwan regard itself to be? The political party in power regards itself to be an independent state. Yeah, but their constitution doesn't. You know what I mean? Like they can become an independent state, but they would have to you have seventy five percent and then bring it to a referendum. Which they can do, but, the, 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 but they the, don't. The, have I'm just telling you what the position of the party in power is. It's like the social dem. It's like the uh, what, I forget the name of the, the no, party. No, I, I, I know. I know the party. They're saying it's it's not even necessary for them to modify the constitution or declare independence because they're already it's unnecessary because they're already an independent state. That's how they view it. Okay, so like. I get, I like, I, I like intellectually understand what you're saying, but like, that's not how the world. Like, if you look at the, like the countries in the world that recognize them, we don't recognize them as an independent state. Right. Literally, like it literally says on the American website that not not we not only do we support uh, a one uh, China policy, but we do not see, and it literally says this on the government's website: we do not seek to change that policy. Well, well, right, and, and if you like, you listen to like somebody from the State Department or the Defense Department who's reciting the standard line on Taiwan in, in terms of expressing what the official quote-unquote policy is, they will say a variation of that, meaning we stand by these different communiques that have been issued since the 70s around Taiwan, and that's the policy. Nothing has changed, but clearly what they're doing is eroding that policy gradually to the point where I think – you're going to have something close to a consensus among the Republicans running for president in 2024 that there should be an official, I don't know about Trump necessarily, he might actually be an exception, but um, like a, I think you, you, you're likely to see a DeSantis or some, uh, definitely like a Haley or whoever wanting to officially abrogate the one China policy so that they can't even now rely on what is ostensibly the official policy of recognizing just well, one China, they want to officially recognize independence. So I think that's going to be the policy shift. And they're already, I mean, they already did the most significant 
erosion of the one China policy consensus with the NDAA last year, where they're saying we're going to now have joint military exercises with the Taiwanese military. We're going to have heightened diplomatic recognition of various officials from Taiwan that had not been allowed before. There's going to be an acceleration of the militarization of Taiwan beyond what had been the standard protocol. Um, and so, I mean, that, that process is already in the works. Yeah, I know. And any Republican that thinks that isn't fit for office, honestly. Like, the, the reality is, is that, like, our country needs to start looking within and fix ourselves and, like, what we're doing and not worrying about outside issues. And so far, we have governors that look for things to do in other states or in other countries. And we, as a country, we're looking to interfere in the sovereign rights of other countries, which is not how you're, that, that's not how international relations work, you know? So, like, the reality is, is that we can want Taiwan to do all this stuff, but, like, we're fighting a losing battle. And it's not because, like, China's better than us or anything like that. But at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to help Taiwan militarily. Like, the reality is, is that how would we even get Look what's going on in Ukraine, right? We got a, a, an issue with the production of weapons and getting weapons there or tanks or whatever. Taiwan's a freaking island. How are we going to get there? If, let's just say we did go to war, theoretically speaking, right? The first thing that's going to happen is China will blow up all their ports, okay? And then we can't get shit in there at all, ever. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I mean, let's say that Biden and others are sincere when they're saying there's going to be a no-holds-barred war with China over Taiwan. So di different than a proxy-type war in Ukraine, right, in that you don't have NATO doing sorties over Ukraine at the moment. If they did, if there was an all-out U.S.-NATO war in Ukraine against Russia, maybe it would result in nuclear <laughs> destruction. But it would make a difference, right? So if there was, if they had the, the resources of the U.S. Navy and Air Force in the South China Sea bombing, you know, whatever port is launching Chinese warships from, I don't, how would that not well, make like, a difference? Think, the U.S. is still the preeminent military power in the world. I mean, I, I think okay, it's ridiculous that they wouldn't make a difference. Well, no, no, it, well, it, 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 like, because it would be the goal. It's like, I mean, are we trying to save Taiwan in, like, so far as an actual country that can continue on and go on? Like, like, yes, we can make an all-out war, potentially nuclear, where we just go balls to the wall. Taiwan will get completely leveled in the process. All of our aircraft carriers will get sunk in the process and will eventually win in some capacity because our nuclear submarines are far superior than anything that China has. But, like, that's all that could come out of it. Like, we can't help Taiwan to keep Taiwan existing as it does today. Because well, it's not, and that's the thing. It's a, it's a conceit that it's in any way specifically related to Taiwan as such. The, 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 the broader reason for why this war is seen as inevitable is because there's an inevitable confrontation that's in the offing between the U.S. and China for the title of world hegemon. So if that can degrade China's ability to be to, to supplant the U.S. as world hegemon, then China, then Taiwan is just like the pretext for for that for waging that right. war. Yeah, and I agree one one thousand percent. I just think that's just an awful, terrible, unethical, immoral way to go about things well, as sure. a country. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, you know what I mean? I mean like, think about the, I mean, it's just it's such an insane proposition. It's amazing that people just take it as a given. I mean, it could 
you know, this is that's World War Three. I mean, World War Three is like a hard to fathom as to how destructive that could potentially be. I mean, they talk about some of these war game scenarios include China attacking Hawaii, um, even the West Coast, like California and Washington and whatnot. I mean, it's a it would be an all out total war, and, th- and these people talk about it as though it's just this, you know, little abstraction you can play literal games with. Yeah, it's fucking facocta bullshit by warmongering globalists that, like, can't accept the fact that, like, maybe there's multiple powers in the world versus, you know, a singular power. But, like, as an American or as a person, I don't get my value out of having America be the best thing in the world. I get my value over, like, being able to raise my family and have a good environment to do so. And if in the end, at the end of the day, if like there was a genuine reason why going to war out of this country would help propel those interests, I would be open to, li- uh, you know, listen. Well, it's interesting but, like, that you say that you've been talking to, you know, representatives of different levels about this, because I think, you know, <laughs> uh, the Democrats are a lost cause on Ukraine stuff and increasingly on China stuff. But it'll be interesting to see if, like, more consciousness can be raised among Republicans in particular on the destructive potential of this China conflict that their representatives are actively attempting to instigate at the moment. Like, it seems like there has there, there if you want to prevent something like this, there really would have to be much more of a public information campaign targeted at Republicans, meaning voters and just ordinary people, to understand the implications of what's being advocated here by Congress and by, you know, leading Republican figures, potential presidential candidates and so forth. Because as of now, I don't think there's a whole lot of even just basic conscientiousness as to what is being agitated for here. Oh, I, I agree 100%. I mean, what, what I what I find is you, you, you when you're talking to people, you know, this is also privately, but it's one of two camps. And one is, is that people are a little less strong um, intellectually, despite the fact that they're competent leaders and you can essentially bully them in such a way where you can be like, listen, don't be a fucking idiot. Like we're not going to war with Taiwan, like for Taiwan, like think about it, don't be an asshole. And that works, right? Like if you continually do that, but then you deal with people who are very competent um, in the, in both as a leader, but also like in the political like the mechanism of jumping up the ladder politically. And if you have those people when they're wheeling and dealing, it's a much harder sell to them because they utilize it as almost like a bargaining chip to get what they want to further their career. And they see it as like, listen, like, you know, whether we go to war, whether we don't, I'm going to, you know, appropriate this or do this bill or however we got to do it. And they continue to push and let the narrative go uh, further because they have self-interests that they think take precedent because they can do more if they let that one thing go. You know what I mean? So it's just like, but really the whole thing is very revolting. Just like on its press. Yeah, well, my journalistic impulse, John, is to (laughs) encourage you to name names at some point because I think it's such a high-stakes issue that these people, like, ought not to be afforded, like, the presumption of privacy. I mean, there needs to be, there needs to be some really thoroughgoing public scrutiny here. Well, like, it isn't like if I thought I, I honestly like when 
when you're at the point where you have relationships with people, it's not that you're scared to out them. It's that you feel that more or less that there's always still a chance that you can make a difference to avert something if it's really a crisis time. And that would be eliminated by saying names, if that makes sense. But like the, but the bottom line is, is that like, that like, yeah, I always think of this one story you tell where um, you talk about the one leader you met in Pennsylvania and you asked him a question and you were surprised at how stupid he was. They didn't even know what the <laughs> yeah, answer exactly. was. He, he lost. He, I, he was going to, he was going to, uh, he thought, I thought he was going to win actually last year, but. But I think about that example all the time because it's so incredibly um, apropos of what we actually are dealing with as far as like our leaders like our leaders aren't they're very much like figureheads in a way and you have uh you know 20 percent that know what the hell they're doing out of the 20 set 20 percent that know what they're doing half of them are good half of them are playing the game but you got that 80 percent that are just like you know like not i don't want to say bumbling fools but like they're not they shouldn't be like representing people like they don't have that they they really like they really count on their staff to do the work you know what i mean like they like they're not spotting errors that like a competent 10th grader could spot. right which is why um no that's that's true for a lot of people but then you also have the handful of genuine ideologues like a mike gallagher who is very He's an intelligent person who's knowledgeable about the issues and who has an ideological mission. So how to deal with that type of person, I think, is a, it's a more difficult question. That's the, yeah, and that's the type of person that just needs to kind of, like, face, like, kind of intellectual scorn. Like, it's just, there's, like, like, the reality is, is that, you know, there are starving kids in America, right? Right this second, there's some kids starving trying to go to sleep that had school tomorrow that's going to perform bad because of that and these fucking schmucks are worried about a war game in taiwan and freaking hegemony and freaking china and all this like dude, it's disgusting oh. but yeah it is what it is yeah yeah all right uh well th- that anyway, next, John, uh, stay in touch about what you're uh, observing yeah definitely take it easy man. all right uh johnny Hey, what's going on, Michael? How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? Uh, the Celtics won, so I'm a little bit better than I was a few minutes. Oh, did they? Is that um, what's yeah, the... game six in Atlanta? You know, I uh, I one of my most ridiculous impulse buys of all time is that I bought a ticket to go to Memphis if there's a game seven between the Lakers <laughs> and the Grizzlies. So I'm gonna if if, so if you're a gambling if, man. <laughs> well, yeah. So if uh, well, it was it's. I, I think I get refunded if there's no game seven, but as of now, <laughs> I'm going to Memphis for on Sunday if there's a game seven because I, I I've never seen LeBron live and I feel like this is like one of maybe one of the few final chances. Yeah, so, so. I figured what the what what the left, hell, right? and I think it, it yeah, also just and, and and Memphis is kind of like a more of an obscure location for an NBA franchise, so it's like not as insane a price as it would be if like you went in LA or something. So. Yeah, you're better off trying to grab the earlier rounds too. Any anything later on in the playoffs, you're gonna really, you know, yeah. it goes vertical. The curve. I know. Like I'm not spending like six thousand dollars to go, but I'll spend you know six hundred. You're getting value for money in the early playoff rounds. I'm with you. Yeah. So, yeah. so well, th- th- thanks for helping me rationalize my ridiculous impulse behavior. No, that's um. Well, my colleague from work the other day was saying tickets for the Celtics home game were like 75 bucks 
And I was like, really? I'm like, why? That seems suspiciously cheap. Really? Why? He's like, but then they start going way up in the later rounds. All right. Yeah. Well, I so got. I, I got. Really I got good. I got good round. seats. Yeah, I got good seats for this play, for this uh, game seven. So oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope we'll it see. materializes for you. <laughs> what uh? What's gonna happen if it sells Knicks, man? You gonna come on? You're a Jersey man. You're a Knicks guy. No, because you know, my I, I was a new. I grew up as a New Jersey Nets fan. Like I was, they they were in the finals. <laughs> Brooklyn <Nets> for you. <laughs> well, they were in the finals in back to back years. It was oh one and oh two, I think, with Jason Kidd and Kenyon Martin and everything. And so that was my hometown team. And they were actually they actually like overperformed relative to what you might expect for the New Jersey Nets. Yeah, they got beat by uh, Shaq and Kobe, but they were still in the finals, right? Um, no nostalgia so, for the Patrick Ewing and John Starks era. Yeah, I do have some actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking but, you know, back. <laughs> but but once but what once they moved to Brooklyn, right? I I spent like a year kind of like maintaining my fandom just for the Nets, but then I had to just emotionally detach. So now I I'm just a general. Uh, I'm not as into the NBA as I have been in the past. I still watch it now, especially during the playoffs here and there, but. I've really tr- transitioned into just being a general fan in that, like, if there's a good rivalry or a good, um, you know, matchup or whatever, I'll get involved in that rather than having a rooting interest in any particular team. I, I recognize this is, like, an incredibly autistic way to follow a professional sports league, but <laughs> that's just how I, uh, how I kind of follow it. I, I can't get mad at that, though, because... First off, I don't do regular season NBA. I just start tuning in for the playoffs. Yeah, I went to. Uh, there's enough content there for me. I go to like maybe one or two games in the regular season a year. Just, but I also just, just randomly, do... like I went to uh, I went to uh, Nets Knicks in February. Oh, okay. At the yeah, at the Madis- yeah. at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, there you go. That's a good idea. Yeah, I, I can I can see that. Um, I take the approach that you take with the NBA with soccer. So like I'll tune in for cool, fun games. I get fired up for the world cup, but then I'll tune out for long stretches too, which is the opposite of what you're supposed to do, which is like pledge your undying love and give a kidney to like some English premier league team, which I refuse to do. My kidneys are mine. Yeah, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I know that like, you're not a real. F- Actually, you know what? My, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to go to. Uh, I've been meaning to do this. My, my girlfriend is English, right? So she, that you have these very local team support things, and I, I've been, <laughs> I'm, 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 I don't even know what to call it exactly. But like, there's like there's this diehard support base for like the local team. I think it's like uh, what is it called? Tottenham, I think. Oh, um, yeah, Spurs. Yeah, exactly. Just call them Spurs. Don't call them Tottenham. Okay, I don't even know. I, I don't even think that's the right team. It's like it's like a not a notable team at all. But like, there's a just a oh, okay. group of diehards who go to every game and like follow every yeah, little minute develop. Yeah, exactly. And I just kind of want to yeah, observe they're, they're that too much anthropologically. So I'm going to do that eventually. Once I'm, when I mean, I'm back it gets culty. Yeah, you know. I mean, you can hang with them for a weekend, and you know, I'm sure they'll be friendly enough and bring you along for the ride. Well, call, talk about she from London. Uh, yeah, outside outside London, Kent. Um, okay, uh, Spurs but, but is the, central. But, 
no, no, yeah, it's not, it's not the Spurs. I forget the name of the team now. But her father's like from London, and that's the team. I, I forget exactly. Uh, cool. But talk about cult. I that. mean, fantasy sports has incentivized such cult behavior that you can't associate it now with like <laughs> foreign soccer leagues. Oh, Exclusively, I'm I mean, in Massachusetts. God, if if you didn't pick up the accent, have you picked? Yeah, up, have you seen the, the the gambling ads now? Oh my god! It's 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 just totally. Mer- it's it's amazing how much of a sea change there's been. Yeah. If ten years ago, it would would have been a taboo to have fantasy or even any kind of gambling element so completely integrated with the actual like corporate structure of these leagues. But now it's just a hundred percent fused together. In a way that I think people maybe underappreciate what a diametric shift that is. This isn't going to end well, much like the student loan crisis. It's just going to boil under the surface and just rot society to its core. <laughs> I know, and but, but I'm optimistic. But, 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 <laughs> even even more than like the financial peril of it for just lots of people, what what kind of strikes me is. How much it incentivizes this incredibly granular and ultimately useless obsession with the the truly extreme minutia of who's playing in what day, who do I who like what running back or what power forward do I get for this particular game and who's injured and everything. It's like a whole universe. It's like a whole like epistemological universe that yeah, people like, would people guys get sucked into. Jobs. Yeah, right, people exactly. get picking up second jobs. They have yeah, no. I, mean, I I know people personally who like no have no interest in life other than fantasy sports. Yeah, their their actual full time job is just you know that pays the bills, but fantasy sports is really what drives them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 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 depressing. Like I don't want to totally <laughs> dismiss it because you, I'm sure you don't people shit on them because yeah, you got to have a hobby. You know, yeah, what I mean? you exactly, got to have a passion, exactly. right? Like, you know. Uh, Different strokes for different folks, but I, I have to admit, like, just <laughs> having a bit of a lament as to how ubiquitous it is now. But anyway. Yeah. Most people get worn out. Anyway, uh, on to the main event. So I missed the first four, first 45 minutes. Did uh, did you guys cover the, um, well, I, I mean, I guess a lot of Russia-Ukraine talk, and then it seemed like a transition over the China war gaming stuff. We didn't, actually do, we didn't actually do game. much Russia-Ukraine today, actually, because it was mostly oh. about Tucker. Uh, and then in, get a oh, little okay, bit of yeah, Tucker, and then China war games, yep. right? So, bounds to bring Russia Ukraine back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So, a couple things. Have you noticed? Well, they're uh, military analyst nerd, war nerd stuff, right? Uh, McGregor and Ritter uh, are both making the point that like the casualties are getting really lopsided now, right? Because Ukrainians' air defense has run out of missiles, they can't defend themselves anymore. So. Russia can really bring the air force, and they're dropping these, you know, thousand pound bombs, fifteen hundred pound bombs that level entire buildings. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, I'm in D- I've been in D.C. this week, and I, I spoke to a. Uh, I'm being deliberately cagey, but yeah, I spoke funny. to somebody who. Be as cagey as you want to be, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I spoke to somebody who has direct familiarity with casualties in Ukraine. Okay, and. Even they, and they're like hardcore pro-Ukraine, right? And even they're seeing the writing on the wall. E, e, even well, not that they're seeing the writing on the wall, but even they were emphasizing the profundity of the casualties just in Bakhmut. Mm. 
Um, that, that's and, not even so, the and, and that's like, and that's like an addition against Wagner guys. <laughs> like, well, well, no, no, of Ukraine casualties, of Ukraine casualties. Oh, I know, but they're not even facing the Russian. Oh, yeah, exactly, elite. exactly. And, like and, they're and, facing and, the contractors. And the reason why to put stock in it is that for this person, it was an admission against interest. Like you would not. Yeah. Like they're they're they were here to do lobbying stuff, right? Rea- reality stuff. And so they over the head, well, and and so so for them, they would not want to emphasize the magnitude of the casualties if they could all at all avoid it but even they were having to do it yeah i mean the whole ftf 16 i mean i mean really i mean what 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 struck me about it is you know forget even the political stuff just on a humanitarian level it's actually very i felt sad for them i mean these people are the you people in ukraine the impression i get is like the they're, they, they've got, they're, they're like collectively traumatized, as you would expect for a, a, any nation that's being subject to like a destructive war, to the yes. point that they, they admit that they can't really engage rationally on the subject any longer. And, then, and yet, and yet the, their priorities, meaning governmentally, the, the prior, priorities of the Ukraine government and society, they're at least ostensibly what, what we're being told the U.S. is deferring to, meaning nothing. Uh, Nothing about That's Ukraine without Ukraine. It's only for them to decide, et cetera, et cetera. That's at least like the nostrum that we're fed about the war strategy. And so what's being deferred to is a society and a government that is just by their own admission. Of course, I'm generalizing here, but like I think it's a fair generalization. By their own admission, they are not in a position where they have the capability, even if they wanted to, to be rational on the subject. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, you know, they've got full-on conscription, grabbing, guy, you know, grabbing teenagers and old guys out of the streets. I mean, they're in a bad situation. Like, we need to wrap this up. I mean, McGregor and Ritter are both throwing out three hundred thousand dead. I mean, that's catastrophic. That seems high to me, but I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it seems high, but are I'm they saying three hundred thousand like reality dead is starting to move in their direction? You know, are they saying three hundred thousand dead or three hundred? Yeah, they're saying three hundred thousand dead. I mean, See, the I Ukrainians I never say a get, word about this. I don't know where they get that. I mean, I mean, I that wasn't reflected in the in the in the documents leak. I mean, I know you got to look at that with a grain of salt, but yeah, I mean, do, are those documents like one of the interesting things that I think came out of those documents is do we just do we even have good information? And then I don't know why does a twenty one year old have it? And, well, no, I mean that's why they're spy- that's, that's, that's why they're spying on Ukraine. Because they don't have access to the information. Well, they're not doing a very good job of it. And if they can't get decent casualty estimates. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, um, 300,000 seems people, high to me, but who knows? I, I'm, I'm starting to move more in the McGregor-Ritter position because I think these guys are more right than wrong, broadly speaking. Um, the other thing is the Zelensky call with China. Do you think he was given the sort of offer he can't refuse, and will he take it? Um, Can he take it, politically speaking? I don't know what – I mean, I read the um, Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs readout of that call. Uh, I I wouldn't overinterpret it, Um, meaning I wouldn't assume that there was some offer made – you know, you got to assume, right, that China is doing this with the full knowledge and even support, endorsement of Russia. It's like, I, I mean, I, I, it would be hard to believe that they would be going around the backs of Russia in making a call like this. I, I don't look at it as much 
in the way of a deviation from the status quo. I think it's just China <coughs> kind of bolstering its <coughs> position as a nominal nominal uh, mediator or, or broker, uh, but but not doing anything that would really undermine its basic alignment with Russia. Um, so are viewed as a credible party, right? So Ukraine, China have fairly decent bilateral relations, right? They, you know, they right, because what does this do? If, if, if now, if now for the first time China has an open line, at least uh, that's been publicly disclosed with Ukraine as well as Russia, then that yeah. elevates China above the U.S. as in terms of credibility as a broker. I think that's that strikes me as probably what it's about more than there being some kind of tangible deal offered. So six months um, ago, I, I that sounded like crazy talk. Today, does it sound like crazy talk? I don't think so. Um, I mean, look at all the deals they're cutting in the Middle East. Yeah. Hey, you can't. I, 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 it's crazy I, anything, talk anymore. Anything's possible, but at least if you look at the on the on the war anniversary in February, right? They they published that plan. China did for Ukraine. Yeah, I don't think there's any reason to believe that whatever they might have proposed to Ukraine in this call is going to be substantially different from what was in that plan. And that plan is just not something that could ever be countenanced by by Ukraine, um, given the current political dynamics there. I so I don't. You, I don't meaning, think they meaning, have a lot of options at this point, <laughs> Mike. That's the thing. They don't. But it, it's not a rational calculus. It's just fight till the end. Fight until there's a regime change in regime regime change in Russia. That's the plan. I mean, if the if the reports of mutiny is starting to intensify, I mean, are they going to have a coup? Is this going to start to look like a South Vietnamese type situation where the whole thing just goes to hell? I mean, can they? Yeah, I mean, I think the South. South hang on. Well, you know, how long can this thing last? It can last until the last Ukrainian, to use a cliche. I mean, I, really, the plan is, to the extent that any plan exists, it's to just keep going and hope for the best. That's the plan. It's not a rational plan. That's the it U.S. plan. It any rational plan. But that's well, it's the, the, you know, it's the Ukraine the, plan as well. The Ukrainian soldiers on the ground have a vote, and they're probably going to switch their vote <laughs> if I don't, keep I, going. I, I, I mean, none I, I, of them want to go so. die to a high ri- in a high-rise from, I, you know... A, I don't think that's that the right way of looking at it. I don't think that's the right way of looking at it, especially having spoken to Ukraine people who were in D.C. Like, lobbying this week. Yeah, they're lobbyists. The longer, the, no, but no, but they're, they're from like civil society and from the, par, you know, the parliament and from you know, military and so forth. The longer the war goes on for these people, the more hardened their position is, right? It's not that – so the less willing they are to take a deal, the less willing they are to – entertain some sort of capitulation or some sort of uh, deference to, to, to Russia that could in any way vindicate Russia. I mean, I think it, it, it's, it's, that's the psychology of it. Yeah. Andrew's so in the a, chat a, saying, a deal, a, rebel. it'll go to the last Ukrainian. Look, they don't until they do, and then things can change very quickly. All of it in, in a hurry, right? That's why. That's why the, the question: way- If the lobbyists have a grasp of what's going on on the ground, like I said, there are scattered reports of mutinies. When I say lobbyists, I, 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 I should have clarified. When I say lobbyists, I don't mean professional lobbyists where their full-time job is to be a lobbyist. I mean they're just in D.C. to advocate for their interests, right? Um, 
Meaning they're not, they don't work for the lobbying firm or anything. Um, it, it's just the, the people who come to D.C. to try to pr- provoke, uh, promote a certain policy agenda. I mean, um, look, if, if there's no formal surrender, are we talking all the way to the Polish border? I mean, we're probably yeah. going at least to the Dnieper River. Well, that's, we that's the, the thing. Uh, that's the thing. <laughs> there was a the brief window of opportunity when the war first started was really the. I, that, once that window closed, it closed. Right. Because as the war stretches on, as I said, the attitudes become more hardened and radicalized and maximalist in, in the goals that are being pursued. Um, and I think we've gotten long past, it's long past the point where that's just now the state of affairs. So um, the idea that there's going to be some epiphany amongst Ukrainian troops who like are saying, oh, you know, we might as well just give in to Russia. At least that's how they would see it. No, I, I don't think that uh, every interaction I've had with the Ukrainians totally belies that as a realistic possibility. That's what I'll they're, say. They're as hawkish as they've ever been. They're as hawkish yes. as they've ever been. Yeah, all right. Well, that's interesting, but I just wonder if the feeling on the ground. I mean, I don't watch a lot of Telegram videos, but some of them are shooting their mouths off a lot more than they were at the start of the war. Well, saying, we've got nothing. We don't have any help. You know, there's no help. You know, F. Zelensky, F. all these guys in charge. They're stealing all their money. I mean, Seymour Hirsch broke that article about how they're just siphoning off, you know, you know Money from the U.S. for gas and buying it from the Russians at a discount. But think about it. if there if there if there are certain people who are um, disillusioned with Zelensky or even the U.S. for not what, on what grounds are they disillusioned? It's because they're not giving them enough to pursue their hawkish aims. Not because they they become less hawkish, right? I mean, if they're waiting for a savior, meaning the West, to enter the war, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you're right. I do think they want NATO to enter the war. And if NATO enters the war, we lose. Like, we'll lose. We can't win a war in Eastern Europe. Maybe so, but the, if you're talking about the variable of Ukrainian attitudes, I don't think there's any reason to think that they're 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 trending toward a less maximalist view of the situation. If anything, it's the opposite, and that just has to do with the longevity longevity of the war and like the collective psychology around what I mean. Think about it: if you're invested in a war at, for a year plus, yeah, it's it's that World War One mentality where there's so right. many dead. Was the sacrifice in vain? You know, you right. can't give up on all them. They gave their lives. What are you doing? You know, yeah. no, right. I get the mentality, but at some point. The- Russians got to set in and say, like, you know, please, just no more dead. Right. right. All, All right. right. Well, yeah, um, thanks, thanks Johnny. Mike. I appreciate yeah. it, man. Yeah, yeah, take care. All right, Joseph, how's it going? What's going on, man? Um, hey. well, I, uh, I I did miss the, uh, the first half of the show. So you missed, you missed a lot of good happens. shit. Oh, really? What, what, I mean, I don't want, you know, obviously you don't have to go over it, but what, what was your general view on Tucker? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's Richard and I, so I'll give you just a brief. Where the fuck uh, is Richard? Where'd he go? <laughs> he's, he stays for like an hour and 15 minutes and then he goes. Which oh, I oh yeah. he's, he's, he's too good to talk to the people. Yeah, and he's always, oh. he, well, he always has like a crying baby with him and stuff. So maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. Ah, yes. um, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess 
Meanwhile, he's got the the Home Alone uh, tape player with the crying baby, and that's his <laughs> no, excuse. I, I actually, I actually do think he's procreated. Believe it or not, um, really, yes. Okay. And he, we're all going to make it. Well, he, and he has some. He, his wife is like some genius engineer type from Caltech. So well, good for um, him. Yeah. Um, so uh, I got one point that I'll just reiterate. From before is that you know a lot, there's been a lot of speculation about there being some kind of grand ideological explanation for why the ouster happened of Tucker, and having a little bit of inside information, not a whole lot, but enough to make a preliminary sort of assessment. I really don't think that's a plausible explanation. Mm. I think much more likely, if you want to have a firm theory that is most explanatory is that it's really just about corporate arbitrariness and corporate capriciousness. And even if you were searching for a holistic explanation that incorporated, like, Tucker's position politically, it wouldn't hold, right? It, it's just about the kind of stupidity and randomness of how the corporate relations work between a guy who had a lot of autonomy within an organization, you know, is was clearly not a fan of the corporate hierarchy. And then that just simmers until there's a breaking point. And there you have it. I mean, I doubt if you gave everybody involved truth serum that you would even get a, a firmly ideological explanation for it. I think it's just much more banal than that, which is not satisfying for a lot of people because they want to believe that, like, oh, Tucker was... Stymie because he's challenging the deep state or he's challenging foreign policy consensus. I kind of I wish that were the case. And by the way, I have a self interested motive in this because you know that was probably my only opportunity to ever get on broadcast TV. Uh, but I think ultimately, if you are honest about it, you know it's it probably is less of a sweeping ideological or political uh, rationale than people might want to believe. Um, well, I have to disagree with you. I mean. Uh, Rupert Murdoch lost $182 million overnight for his net worth just for firing Tucker. Um, the Fox News bench is the Fox News. Fox News without Tucker is like, um, you know, I know you were talking about basketball. Pardon my dated references. Uh, it's like the Chicago Bulls without Jordan. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, that, that, that doesn't, uh, sound that plausible to me because I also have known people that have worked at Fox news and I've heard things like his sons, Rupert Murdoch's sons never liked Tucker. They were really sensitive to these uh, accusations that he's a white nationalist and that he's racist and so on. Uh, Going back to 2019, they were complaining about this. Um, So then why did they tolerate it for four years? Because Rupert Murdoch tolerated it. He he was on Tucker's side, uh, frankly, because he was making him a lot of money. Um, so I find that to be uh, rather unconvincing. Uh, I think that, frankly, the uh, Abby Grossberg, the person suing them. Um, yeah, which, which seems well, like a bullshit lawsuit. Let me, let me, what are you it does. But let me put on my, my, my tinfoil hat here. Uh, this woman apparently has 90 secret recordings from when she worked at Fox, and none of them are of Tucker because Tucker didn't interact with her. He's in Maine, 
and she was in the Fox News office working uh, away from Tucker. So she's not filming Tucker, right? Um, she's recording uh, other people at Fox. Um, this sounds like someone who is a plant, uh, Michael. Uh, someone who was specifically sent uh, no. into this. Well, it sounds crazy. Sent by whom? Probably the anti-defamation. Joe Biden? No, probably the ADL, which has been trying to get Tucker off the air for the last three years. I think, that well, I, I really, I mean. When they do shit like that. Go look up some of their history. Anything's know. possible, okay, but I strongly doubt that. I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate the extent to which a lot of the people who work for Fox in like a you know lower level producer role or production assistant or that kind of thing, not really high profile personalities, but they just work there as a job are are just kind of workaday TV type people who aren't particularly ideological. You know, as I mean, I've interacted with them, having been to the Fox studios and so forth. I mean, the idea that there there has to be a plant. I don't know. I, I find that I find that really implausible. Well, th this is actually the norm. I mean, you've seen Project Veritas, right? I mean, if they can do it, just imagine people with a lot of resources. Project mm -hmm. Veritas plants people in CNN and New York Times all the time. Why wouldn't someone be able to do it to Fox? Um, Particularly well, if they don't like what Tucker is. It depends what you mean by a plant, right? I mean, Abby, I don't know anything about Abby Grossberg other than her relationship to this lawsuit, right? But she could just be somebody who, just on her own volition, was involved in, like, TV production stuff and said, you know what? I'm here. I'll tolerate Fox for a while, even though I might have an ideological aversion to it, and I'll just accumulate evidence that maybe I can use about use down the line. The idea that it had to be a concerted plot where she's a plant designated by some organization or whatever – I mean, again, anything's possible, but well, I tend I mean, to doubt it. I'm sorry, Michael, but you don't think it's strange that uh, Tucker Carlson is removed from his highly, the most highly rated uh, cable news show probably in history, um, at least in the in the partisans commentary world, um, and he's removed at the peak of his career uh, without warning. No, not uh, really. I mean, they did the same thing. I mean, oh come on, Bill O'Reilly. I'm not likening them as comparable political figures in any sense, right, necessarily. But they dumped Bill O'Reilly unceremoniously after he was the face of the network since its founding in 1996 and was the top-rated cable news host for, like, 16 years straight. Yeah. So, no, I don't, I, it doesn't, I, don't, I don't think it's unfathomable for that to happen. They did the same with Glenn Beck. For the 5 p.m. hour. Right. They got but, rid of Megyn Kelly. Right. Or uh, Megyn Kelly is, left. Well, Megyn Kelly, Megyn Kelly was definitely fired for political reasons. Um, she was uh, uh, targeted by the Trump people. And Fox News caved to that pressure. Um, because if you recall, in 2015 and 16, she was, like, trying to set Trump up and playing little games and stuff. So they got rid of her for that reason. The point, the uh, Bill O'Reilly, I think, the, the just point is, outlived his usefulness. Well, the point, yeah. the point is, it doesn't strike me as requiring some sort of conspiratorial explanation to understand why it is that somebody who is a profitable host on the network might nonetheless be removed. Well, would you agree that he had very powerful enemies?
I mean, the Pen- everyone from the Pentagon to Vox to the New York Times is literally dancing in the streets. Um, over but he also had lots of powerful so, allies. I mean, the Speaker okay. of the House gave him exclusive access to tape. I mean, it's a combination of stuff, right? I mean, the idea that he it's either he's anti-establishment or pro-establishment or he has powerful enemies versus he doesn't, I think it misreads the situation. Do, I mean, do you think that Kevin, no, is, Kevin is McCarthy Trump a power, gave... Is, is Donald Trump a powerful ally? Um, well, the question is, are we're Tucker and Trump allies? Um, because, again, I'm privy to some information that Tucker and Trump have actually a pretty chilled relationship. Tuck, well, uh, Tucker Trump is much closer to Hannity. Tucker was just in Mar-a-Lago doing an exclusive interview with Trump. Sure, yes, but that's because Tucker is the kingmaker on conservative media. Uh, yeah, I think we're, what, we're, what we're disagreeing here is the power dynamic. Uh, I don't think Kevin McCarthy gave the January 6th tapes to Tucker because he loves Tucker. Okay, I really doubt that, especially when Tucker is out there uh, talking about what a waste the Ukraine war is or even Taiwan. I mean, yeah. he's a China hawk, but I've heard him actually oppose military intervention over time yeah which is very yeah, yeah. He, he's a he's a um, tucker evolved so i doubt that kevin mccarthy likes the number one uh conservative commentator probably the number one conservative influencer in the country essentially going against 90 percent of his legislative agenda um you know on these things so uh the the, the relationship was really that they were subservient to tucker not the other way around and I think they're probably relieved that he's gone. Um, no, no, I think I think that's probably I think that's probably true because because there were there were, like a Kevin McCarthy type or just like a generic Republican type in Congress or whatever. They would be relieved in that they don't have this pressure now being exerted on them from sort of a less conventionally Republican angle, right? right? They don't have to feel like if they. Um, espouse some kind of interventionist view. They don't feel like that's now a liability for them politically because they could be targeted by Tucker, right? Right. So I think that's a second-order effect of the ouster for sure. I just don't think that there's a whole lot of good reason to believe that that was a primary reason for the ouster. I I think it's a combination of things overall. Um, But you you can't possibly say – I mean – when, when somebody is willing to lose $180 million from their net worth overnight, uh, and their stock falls 5%, knowing, you know, they know, you know, he's gonna, Rupert Murdoch is gonna probably get hit with shareholders' lawsuits over this. Um, you know, so when someone makes a decision like that, that is not profit mode, that is not profit motivated, then what is the actual Occam's razor here? Well, it's politically motivated. Um, ideologically. So was it motivated. politically motivated when they got rid of Bill O'Reilly? No, but that was different. He got basically they got rid of him because he was hitting on some intern and he's got no game. Uh, so the intern was suing him for sexual harassment and so on and so on. And in America, you basically have to fire someone if they do that um, because of the way the laws are structured. Or else you're just going to be paying out the ass of these lawsuits. But they had to pay out the ass of the um, lawsuits anyway. That's true. That's true. And they but, could have just kept the cash cow of Bill O'Reilly around, who was the number one top-rated cable news host for like 16 years I, at that point. I don't think – well, your, your opinion is, is in the minority because every, no, nobody 
no commentators who follow politics or comment on the media would even for five seconds compare Bill O'Reilly to Tucker, whether in influence or even in the ability to make Fox News money. No, I'm, 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 not, I'm comparing them just in a narrow sense. I'm not saying that they're comparable figures in every regard. I mean, th- think this- of, for example, Fox News, the, uh, the streaming service. I mean, that was just the Tucker channel. Yeah, it was all Tucker all the time. I mean that that platform without Tucker is nothing but like uh, is Noah's Ark real? Let's find out. It's <laughs> yeah. that, it's that like, kind of shit. Or like World War, like the same World War II history stuff, <laughs> like like Churchill's legacy right. or something that you could get on the History Channel. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I right. was on. I was or, on. Or Twitter like the Charleston H- Heston, uh, you know, entire filmography. Is yeah, on there. <laughs> I was on. Yeah, exactly. I was on Tucker's uh, long form show thing that he right. brings people to Maine for. Uh, you have to subscribe to Fox Nation to see. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I think so, I, like, I know there's that. Subs- that's gonna sink. Okay. I know people who subscribe just to watch my dopey appearance on it. So yeah, right. Yeah, so see. so Tucker's show was the draw, and also is is really good um, journalism. It's a shame it was only like on that platform because some of it was amazing. Uh, Tucker Carlson originals, yeah, yeah. and I'm not um, really fantastic. I'm not trying to downplay his influence, right? I, I just think that when it comes down to it, if you had to proffer some sort of ultimate explanation for the ouster, I really doubt it's as ideological or political as people think. I think it has a lot more. And Richard agreed with this when I was talking about it earlier. I think it has a lot more to do with just the ultimately banal capriciousness of how these kind of corporate structures work. That's, that's so, my basic... So the fact that uh, this guy is like a huge thorn in the side in solidifying or manufacturing a consensus on American foreign policy or uh, the fact that this guy, you know, it's an election year coming up or the fact that this guy is constantly undermining the Republican leadership by criticizing them from the right... Uh, the fact that this guy actually will cover stories uh, that the media doesn't want out there, you know, particularly stories surrounding racially uh, sensitive topics. Um, so this guy is doing all of this, and it's a banal explanation. Like, why did they fire Maria Bartolomo? Like, she's, like, uh, causing them way more problems in court. Um, with the Dominion lawsuit and so on. They didn't fire her, you know? Yeah. I don't know, hey, man. I mean, I, 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 I'm open to there being more information that could maybe shift my view in one direction or another, but that's... I, I think, no, and, and I mean this with all due respect, but it, it's a bit naive. I mean, you, you have to admit, America is not a free country. I mean, yeah. will, will you admit that? <laughs> okay, I'll admit it. I actually have to go now. Sorry. Okay, okay gotcha, yeah. gotcha. All right. All right, everybody. Thanks. Tune in next Take time. So, so, sorry, Mauricio. Uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll reconvene. All right. All right. Bye bye. Take. Care.